for those of you who do not know me, um, let me just take this off. So, uh, I work as a clinical chaplain at uh, St. Paul's Hospital, and um, we've been here for a couple years now. So, uh, it's good to uh, it's good to fellowship with you this morning, and thank you, Scott, for the introduction. Um, as I said, I work as a clinical chaplain at a local hospital in, uh, in Vancouver and St. Paul's in downtown. And, and for the last 10 years, I work with people that are on uh, regular dialysis. And so these people come to the hospital on a regular basis. So I had a little bit of a report with them. And um, a few weeks back, uh, I had to go back to that floor and, 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 and grab something. And as I, was leaving, as I was leaving the floor, there was Franco. And he's a little bit of a rough guy. He, he actually lives in an SLO not far from here. And, but I, I had a, quite a bit of rapport with him over time. And so he, um, I, I know him. And he's an interesting guy. He reads Plato and Augustine in his spare time. And I mean, deep man. And so he saw me from a distance. And I kind of couldn't recognize him because we all have masks on in the hospital. And, and he did this from afar, like really far, like probably like 50 feet down, down the hall. And then he yelled. He goes, hey, Mr. Pitcher. Um, what do you say to that, right? Um, now my days of being Mr. Pitcher are long gone. But um, what I was asked to do today is to unpack a little bit of what missional presence is with you this morning. Uh, and I can only speak from my own experience uh, and understanding of the chapters in the Villa spoke. And the intention is twofold. One is to wrestle with the idea what it means to be missional. And two is the open spaces for perhaps for ourselves, for you and me. Um, so we'll see the possibilities of, that God has put us in, in, in our own context as individuals, but also as a unit here, and I'm always mindful that we're not just individuals that follow Jesus. We are as a unit, as as Artisan Church. Um, so we've been going for this book. If you, you know, hopefully, you know, most of you know that if, unless you're new here, that we've been going through Rich Velda's book called The Deeply Formed Life. Uh, it's been a couple of months now, uh, going through the series, helping us to engage with the world that we lived in. And I think the teaching team has chosen this book for two reasons. Um, we acknowledge, first of all, the realities that we're in. We, we do live in unprecedented times where polarized ideologies and brokenness fill our spaces. You know, in, in a kind of like the floodwaters coming into the Sumas Valley this past week. It's, you cannot stop it. It's kept coming and kept coming on a regular basis. And yet, we firmly believe that God the God that we proclaim to be our Alpha and Omega, and he continues to speak to us and through us to other people in conventional ways, but also in mysterious and unexpected fashions. Now, I don't know what you think about this, but if you're relatively new to Artisan, you probably know the answer to this question. What is the first thing that you see when you click onto the Artisan Church website? This is what you see, joining God in the renewal of all things. It's literally the first thing that you see. If you are, let's say, you don't know about this church, and you, you search for the website, and it pops up, 
But what does that mean? How do we join God in the renewal of all things? I don't know if you've thought about that. Even those of us that have been here for a long time, do we just Google this and then and, and see in, if there's a feasibility analysis of this statement? Or do we jump into whatever? That's the hot button issue of the day, and we engage. Now, I remember this um, question was asked when I was like, sitting right there uh, a few months ago when there was a little commissioning prayer for my daughter Erin when she was moving up from the children's Sunday school uh, cluster to the youth cluster. And Terry asked that question uh, to her and, and some of her peers. What does it mean to join God in the renewal of all things? It's an essential question. Now, of course, what is the answer? Let's look at the answer after a couple more clicks on the website. And we have sort of modified slightly in a way that you can read it in sections. This is how it goes. The act of joining God in the renewal of all things begins in our lives and neighborhood. It means seeing Vancouverites transform into the followers of Jesus, practicing his way of becoming like him in every sphere of life. And our deepest desire is to be changed and create change. That's the vision. And how do we do it? There are three formations, community, spiritual, and ministry, which is strikingly similar to, guess what? What Villado says in his little book here. But also, if you are familiar with our community groups that we have in, in our church, it's actually very similar to our community group philosophy. Community is work work. Spiritual is in work and up work. And ministry is our work. And the aim is what? For people not simply to attend church, but to be the church. Being welcome, growing in and empowered in creating an alternative culture that embodies Jesus' love in the city. So the conviction that we have, and hopefully we hold on to this even now, and that God has placed within each of us gifts. We're not Christmas yet, but we are gifts passions and abilities to build up the church and put on display the kingdom of heaven on earth. That's a big ass. And in practice, we're here to help one another follow the way of Jesus, live a life of love, and find your place in this community and see the vision of your life release. Not just someone's life, your life and my life. It's pretty loaded, isn't it? But I wonder if this is partly why you're here and why you come to this church, and why you stay in this church. And perhaps, and I hope this is true, and I believe this is true, and this is what we long for as a faith community, because we believe the basis in which we set out for our spiritual pilgrimage is the way of Jesus, not our surrounding cultures, not our um, present ideological hotspots. And when we look for guidance, fortunately, we have the richness of the gospel stories helping us to see the radical and the practical side of discipleship. In other words, it's asking that question that was quite an in thing, even those of you that are around in the 1990s, WWJD, what would Jesus do? It's a really catchy phrase, and it was quite an in thing in the 90s uh, in, among churches. What would Jesus do? What is the Jesus way, and what would Jesus do? So what is missional presence? 
There's no one standard answer for all of us here, obviously, with such a diverse group of people. But I believe missional presence springs from our inner connectedness with God, resulting in, nat- in the natural tendency that we imitate Jesus in our daily routines, within our homes and communities, and in our vocation. Let me say it one more time. This is about connecting with God in an intimate way. So we would actually live out that natural tendency in our daily routines of being Jesus. We don't have to think, oh, I have to be like that. I have to do something different. It's within us. As much, oh, I should say, as much as we are informed and, and connect with Jesus, connect with God in our daily walk. It's pretty remarkable that Villodo spends so much of his book, almost half of his book, on something that we usually don't consider practical, something productive, something that carries a very fast you know, outcome that we will actually see, unlike very uh, many even Christian self-help books. He begins with two chapters addressing our weariness. And if you remember, introducing the concept of contemplative practices. Then again, in chapter five and six, the emphasis is on the deeper examination of ourselves within our, with our family of origin, also with our experiences. Now these are critical elements because it is where our beings live. This is where our beings live. And when we make the attempt to connect with God regularly in our every being, and amazingly, there's a natural desire of wanting to experience holy love in things that we may consider mundane or secular or non-spiritual. And we're glad with that we get a glimpse what practically missional presence could be. And with that, a verse comes to mind. Romans 12. You know this verse. The Apostle Paul issues a plea for the church in Rome for more intentional presence. He started off in Romans 12, chapter one, uh, Romans 12, 1. He says this. I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of he, what he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the, the kind that he will find acceptable. And this is truly the way to worship him. This is how we worship God. But what is Paul really saying here? Now, when you read the first half of Romans, you will see Paul goes into great details of the human problem, sin, and the atoning work of Christ that he has done for us on the cross. And chapter 12 moves into the practical side of how Paul believes the folks in Rome could carry out this view, this new redeemed identity as followers of Jesus. And this is what Paul said. The need to worship God as transformed people on a regular basis is not in our traditional understanding of worship, but in the ministry of our service in our specific context. And this is the way to worship him. This is spiritual worship. This is reasonable service in some translation. So in other words, the call is to live a transformed existence with a renewed mind embedded in the love of God. And that's the only way to do it. Live a transformed experience with a renewed mind embedded in the love of God. And the basis for this is not the expectation of ourselves 
or others, but what God has in his mercy for us. So missional presence is always and should never drift away from the love of God and the love for his people. Oxworld Chambers, some of you may have heard of this name. He, uh, he was a Scottish Baptist pastor in the early 20th century. And he's known for a very old school classic devotional called My Utmost of His Highest. And he says something really wise about offering ourselves to God as living sacrifices. And I paraphrase here. He said, the only offering we can offer to God is who we are, not who we want to be. Because who we are is the only thing that we can give. So when we live our lives in service to God, we are simply returning love and respect to the one who has already given us so much, everything on the cross. And I think this is critical if we want to be Jesus for other people. Villada says, the deeply formed mission is fundamentally about becoming a particular person and offering that to the world. It's not just about activity, but being Christ for others. Deeply formed mission is first about who we are before who we are becoming, sorry, who we are becoming before what we're doing. There's no easy button to press. There's no easy button for transformation, but there's a way. But first we have to we have to say that I want to engage in this journey. I want to participate in this process. Um, one of the things that I do, because uh, I, I work a very, in a very stressful environment, so one of the first thing I do, uh, things I do for self-care is that I run. Uh, I, I run on a regular basis. Uh, but I didn't start doing this, you know, you know, when start, you know, for the longest time. You know, I used to run track in high school for the long, you know, for a long time, and I stopped. And then a few years ago, I woke up one day and I said to myself, "I need to, I need to look after myself. I need to pick this up again." So I signed up for a race, and look up a training regimen, and I started running. And it was really hard. Like those of you who run, you know, like you haven't done it for a while. It's hard. Um, Waking up, hitting a treadmill or the pavement at 5.30 and get to work by 7 a.m. is, is not fun. Uh, there were days I cursed myself as I hyperventilate um, when I went too fast. Like, why are you doing this? And those long runs, let me get this, long runs on a cold, not just one, but quite a few on cold, rainy Saturday mornings where the group that I run with, that somehow... We uh, chose a route that passes by a couple houses making pancakes and bacon. Oh, and I was hungry and I was rainy, of course, right? But we had a goal. We had a goal. We, we want to complete that, you know, 10, 15, 18, 20K, and then we'll go back to our car and, and then, we, then we, we'll go home for breakfast if we want to go home for breakfast. We increase our distance and endurance so we can get ready for the race that we sign up for. Now, in retrospect, the most precious thing about this was not whether we get to beat a certain time in a race. The joy was in the process of running, the getting there, and the company that I had all along. And these little increments, in these little increments that we have, going up the hill, 
going down a hill. Try, try not to die you know, until you get to the next, next tree. We will transform regardless of the end goal. We trust that process. A run was a run. There's no good one or bad one. There was a run. And I think in many ways our journey of being followers of Jesus is like running. We start somewhere, you know, whether it's getting off the couch and go, go around the block a couple, couple of loops. We soldier for it. We have good stretches. And then we have the hard ones. And sometimes we leave uh, the track for a while because it was too hard. And then we'll come back. We run faster. We run slower. Different groups, different pace groups. Some ended up running marathons. And other people do a 5K race, you know, a park run in the community. And the process remains the same. We all benefit from that process. The desire for Jesus is to, for us is to engage and participate, no matter how mundane or small we think our presence are in this world. He's not asking us to do extraordinary stuff. Rather, it's the heart, our hearts, that he desires in practical terms. And what I mean by that is simple acts of love and obedience. You remember that passage in John 6, that little guy um, who came with five loaves and two fish. I bet he never thought his offering would turn out to be one of the most spectacular miracles in the ancient Near East. He was just being true to who he was and what he had at the moment. And that's what God longs for us when it comes to engaging with others with holy intentions and holy presence. I think the marvelous thing that we have here is we realize that we redeem people. I don't know if you do that. You know, sometimes you look at the mirror, you go, I'm redeemed. We are the ones chosen by God. We are the ones chosen for the high calling of priestly work. Chosen to be a holy people, God's instrument to do his work and speak out for him, to tell others the night and day difference he makes for us, you and I. From nothing to something, from rejected to accepted. I love that passage, First Peter. This is who we are. So how do we go about this? What are the contours of our landscape and surface? And how do we safeguard our own individual process of missional presence. It's hard to me to speak to you because I don't know your stories. And it's hard for me to offer any practical suggestions because it's just hard. And besides, I think this is not my job. It's next week's speaker's job, so it's not uh, my job. Um, but I thought I could offer you a few nuggets that hopefully will set the table as we move into the Advent season of waiting and expecting and what God has and what he is and what he will reveal himself to us in our own very context. The scripture has plenty to say um, about missional presence, so I won't be able to go into all of them, uh, but I think we could highlight a few things here. You know this passage, Matthew 18, the Great Commission. Jesus was given the authority in heaven and on earth, and therefore we can make disciples of all nations. Now, the disciple-making process is done via two channels, right? In baptism and in teaching, two things. So 
people would obey everything Jesus has commanded, as the scripture tells us. Now you notice that Jesus did not say, just tell them everything. But his emphasis is on observance, on doing things, on doing it. Now in some translations, we actually see the highlight on the relationship between teaching and living. In the original language, Jesus actually says, teach them in order that they will observe. That's what he said to his disciples. That's a cause and effect there, a relationship there, between the lesson and the practical. So you don't just learn something. Jesus demands that when we are taught something, we live it out. What does that mean? It means the goal of evangelism is not a one-time event of getting saved, or as Velado says, soteriological transaction. Such a fancy term. The gospel calls us out of our sins and broken us into a newness. That's only possible through the redemptive work of Jesus. And in this newness, we find the promises of a new family that transcends racial and ethnic barriers. In this newness, that we find that promise of this new family. He said that in chapter 3. In the same chapter, Villados quoted George Eldon Led, a theologian, on his understanding of the gospel, understanding of the gospel, and he says this, the gospel must not offer only a personal salvation in a future life to those who believe. It must also, again, transform all of our relationships of life here and now and thus cause the kingdom of God to prevail in this world, in all the world. Much has been said about the third way uh, and the center set church paradigm in our summer series. So I won't get into the details here, but it is important perhaps to re-emphasize no matter what paradigm that we embrace as a community, it is imperative that we do not overlook the essence of the Great Commission, and namely the significance for us to confess our need for the redemptive act of God, exemplified on the cross, and the glorious process of discipleship as we emulate Jesus in our walk to follow him. People do not come to faith because of our mastery of propagating the gospel. People attracted to Jesus, or perhaps I would say attracted to Jesus' way because they see him in our attempts to imitate him in our lives. Now, if the Great Commission is the first half of our outwork movement, then there's no doubt the Great Commandment is the other half. Matthew 25, 25 uh, 35 to 40, we see a religious scholar trying to test Jesus with the question, hey, what is the most important commandment in the Lord Moses? And then Jesus said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbors as yourself. Love your neighbors as yourself. You don't need a seminary degree to carry this out. Pastor Dan White Jr., um, quite a prominent um, uh, figure in the... Uh, he's a pastor in Puerto Rico, but he, he, he's, he has published quite a few books, and he trains pastors. He says it well. He, said, he actually said this yesterday on, on his Twitter account. The early church did not have an evangelism strategy. 
their radical, unselfish love for each other and the enemies was their evangelism. I kept looking at that corner right there. And it's been a few weeks, but I, every time I come into the Japanese hall, I kept looking at that corner. I couldn't help but think, this is where Karen used to park her scooter, right there, where the sun shines. And Karen was one of, the, um, if you know her, Karen was one of the many um, that we met when we explored coming to this church a couple of years ago. Um, she was very different than us. <laughs> um, and those of you who know her well can testify. She also has a unique way of communicating, expressing herself. So it took us a while to, getting, you know, to get used to her. Uh, but we always said sort of, you know, not too far from one another. So, you know, we say hi. And, and I discovered very quickly she was full of love. She greeted us at the entrance. She baked cookies for us. She, she cares, and she loved God. Um, I remember the last conversation I had with her after the service right there. I came to her, and I, I was wondering how she was doing with her health because um, I met her a couple of times, uh, not a couple of times, once, um, when she was at a hospital. And, and so I prayed for her, and I said, I have things, and she talked about so a little bit of her health. But before I was going to go, she actually wouldn't let me go. And she said, how are you doing? She asked me how I was doing. Her love for Jesus and the people of God was pretty simple and yet quite profound. And I would even say it was partly because of Karen that we settled in this church. It was this fellowship that we received that helped us become part of this community. Radical love, loving your neighbors, loving your neighbors as yourself. And lastly, the Beatitudes. Matthew 5. I'm running out of time here, so I won't say much other than this serves as a reminder of the cause and the grace of missional presence in a distracted and disengaged world. Missional presence is not an elective in our religious experience. When we're called to bear witnesses and when we're called to be missional, we know it's not checkbox discipleship. There's a cost. We don't just, you know, check it off and then move on to the next one. It's a lifestyle that is sacrificial. And when we lift out our true self in Jesus' love, the responses are not always rosy. You know that. And allow me to say that. Persecution takes on various forms these days. Some they show up at your front door, and others, they come from within the people that are dearest to you. And Jesus reminds us, this is real. This is where the rubber hits the road. And yet the precious tone of the Beatitudes urges us to persevere and stay put because he blesses us when the going gets tough, when the sun is not shining like today. I'm going to conclude by giving you an analogy that is, I was still debating whether I should tell you this when I was sitting there, because this analogy is somewhat theologically problematic. But I think, I think best illustrate what I would like us to consider. So if you don't hear from me again, you understand why. Um, or if I disappear next week, you understand why. Um, 
It's a Sunday afternoon, and a parent takes his child to a fair that has many exhilarating rides and games, kind of like the PNE we have, you know, not as big as CNE in Toronto, but it's, it's fun. And that child was looking forward to go for a long time, you know, after COVID, after all this lockdown, cannot wait, right? And so they got there, and the mini donuts, and the cotton candy, and the lemonade, you know, it's like, ate them all, you know, right? All the junk food that you can actually stuff in a child's stomach, you put it in. And then the dad asked the father, the dad asked the girl if she's ready to play some games and get on with the roller coaster and other things that, you know, she was thinking of going into. And to a surprise, the child said, no. I don't want to do it. What? So being the ever loving and patient, you know, parent, the father was gentle. So he walked down, walked around with his princess for a couple more loops around the fair. And then he was watching her, making sure she's not rushed, she's comfortable. And he asked her that question again. Honey, what games would you like to play? And then the answer remained, no, I don't want to play. Now the father didn't ask his girl why, but trusting that she has the mind and the sensibilities to make a decision for herself. So he assured her that he would hold her hands if she's scared on a roller coaster, or he will celebrate with her if she wins the biggest stuffy at the fair. But it's also okay if she only wants to watch and walk around and not participate. So they did that for a little bit more and more and more. But as you know, there's one catch. The amusement park closes at 6 p.m. And then by 5.59, the dad says to his precious girl, honey, I'm sorry, sweetheart. It's time to go home. The, the invitation to engage for us from God is there. Our father is with us every single step of the way. He's patient with us. If we are not ready, that's okay. You don't want to engage, that's okay. No coercion, no pressure. But the park closes at 6 p.m. So, let's get on the ride. Let's play some games. That's why I said it's problematic theologically. When we stay within our true self, we would discover that he's actually a lot closer than we think. Think about that. As we prepare for the table, I'll ask you to just meditate on whatever that retain in your head as you know this past 25, 30 minutes. And I pray that if there's a prayer that you want to say to the Lord, offer that as a living sacrifice to him. And let him take hold of your hand in whatever that you're about to engage in. Lord's peace be with you.